listening to another hope-filled message from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifeau.org. Well, good evening. Please be seated. Wow, I get wrecked at baptisms. I don't know. So many different things move different people, but for me, baptisms, they just mess me up. And uh, so good, so good. I'm going to ask our worship team to keep playing, uh, just padding in the background with keys and stay here for a few minutes because in just a few minutes' time, I'm going to get us to do something that uh, I'm going to need your help for. I want to speak to you tonight about faith. Faith for another. Now, I didn't say another faith. I said faith for another. You see the screen on the slides. It's a, a theme I want to share with you. Faith is something that we know about. Faith is the essence of our relationship with God. We even call it my faith. Faith is a currency. It needs to be spent. It's a a language. It needs to be spoken. Faith is a power. It needs to be released. All the way through Scripture, we, we read about these incredible accomplishments that happen because people exercise their faith. We read in the book of Hebrews about people willing to leave where they are and go to a place they've never been because by faith they felt they were meant to go on a journey. By faith, Noah created a vessel for for salvation in an environment where he had to create something that had never been built before for something that had never yet happened. By faith, People saw miracles of provision and impossible situations by faith. Faith is our currency, faith, and without it, it's impossible to please God. Faith is a conduit for all things. But in Romans chapter 12, it tells us these words To each and every one, God has given a measure of faith. If you're comfortable to do so, turn to somebody beside you and say, you have a measure of faith. That's what God's Word tells us. I'd even challenge if you're here tonight and you would say, well, Martin, I don't have a faith in God. I don't have a personal faith. I I could say, well, you do have faith. Every time you sit on that chair, you have faith. It's going to uphold you every time you get on a plane and you... You're entrusting by faith to not only the mechanics of that, of that instrument, the aeroplane, but even to the diligence of the, the person in control of it. We, we all exercise faith. But the Bible says to each and every one has been given a measure of faith. So I want to speak to people today who have faith in Christ. And I want to tell you something that's a little bit radical. I want to tell you that you've been given a measure of faith, but actually you've got too much faith. No, actually you have. God actually gave you more than you need. He actually gave you too much faith and too much of a measure of faith. No, no, He he actually did. Theologically, I can can evidence it for you. I can prove it. You've been given a measure of faith, but actually God gave you too much. He gave you too much faith. And the reason why is because He gave you faith for another. No, no, He did. He's given you more than you need. He's actually given you faith for another. Faith 
for someone that doesn't have enough. Faith for someone who maybe doesn't have any. Or faith for somebody maybe who's lost what they had. No, no, He's given you more than you need. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it tells us that God gives bread for food and seed for sowing. And we often use that as an illustration when it comes to our finance, that wisdom tells us that everything we receive, there's seed in it, not just something for consuming. And the foolish person is the person who sort of consumes everything without sowing. It works in the natural. You know, the, the foolish farmer who takes the whole crop, the harvest, the, the complete harvest, and then consumes it and turns it into bread, next year goes hungry. It's like, oh man, maybe I should have taken 10% of that and put it back into the field. It's, it's true of all things. It's true of finance, but it's actually also true of faith. That some of the faith He gave you, because He gave you a measure of faith. Some of the faith He gave you wasn't for you. It wasn't for consumption. It wasn't to spend on yourself. There's nothing wrong with spending faith on yourself. I, I have to be saved by faith. I have to live by faith. I have to walk by faith. I, I have to do everything by faith. But, but, but if I spend all my faith on me, then I've, I'm, I'm missing something. Because He gave me faith for another. Faith for another. You see, He, he gives you too much it's not all meant to be spent on us I almost wonder when I read in the scriptures about the parable of the talents how he gave one person one he gave one person two he gave another person five I think sometimes that's an image of where if we just simply like the one who had the one talent bury it and he comes back and says well what did you do with it it's like well God all the faith you gave me I used it I actually wonder if actually it's the, it's the one who got the three and the five who multiplied and invested it is the model of someone who actually used faith, not just internally, but for others. So, so we're going to hang out for a few moments tonight and talk about faith for another. Because you got too much. You got, you got more than you need. You really have. I want to take you first of all to a, a person in Scripture who we're not even told their name. We're simply told their vocation. In Matthew 8 verse 5, we're introduced to a person who's referred to as the Roman centurion. But he actually had too much faith. He had faith for another. If you know the account, it's the one time in Scripture where Jesus is blown away or amazed by someone's faith, so much so he presses the pause button on every conversation around him and draws the attention of the disciples and the crowds to this Roman centurion. And he says, man, say it again. Say it again, what you just said. And the context is basically where he has said, hey, Jesus, I don't even need you to come to my house. You just need to speak the word and it's done. And the Bible says this man had such great faith. But did you realize that he was actually spending his faith for another? See, the Bible says that this Roman centurion came to Jesus met Jesus right on the border of the, the town of Capernaum. And he comes and he says these words. He says, Jesus, my servant, is at home paralyzed, sick and suffering great pain. Would you heal him? Would you speak the word? Would you heal him? And Jesus is like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll come and pray for him. And he goes, no, you don't even have to come into my house, Jesus. See, I'm a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes. This one, come, and he comes. Uh, you just have to speak the word, and it will happen. And Jesus is like, whoa, 
What great faith. But you see, the Roman centurion was actually expending his faith for another. He, he needed, well, actually, he didn't need. His servant needed. His servant needed healing. He was paralyzed. His servant needed relief from pain and suffering. He was suffering greatly. But you know, sometimes there are people in our life who are paralyzed, unable to get to where Jesus is. Paralyzed by having no faith. Paralyzed by past experiences that have caused them not to believe. Paralyzed by doubt or fear, whatever it is. And sometimes we need to have someone like the Roman centurion who says, I got this. I got this. I, I, I can use my faith. See, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us that, it, that the Roman centurion would sit day by day and speak to the servant and say, you know what, if you could just get up, man. If you could just find enough in you to, to heal. If you could just go and find Jesus. If you could just believe it. No, no, it's like he just said, no, it's okay, I got this. I got faith. Actually, I got so much faith that even when I finally got to Jesus, I and I, I could speak to him face to face. I'm like, Jesus, here's the need for my servant. And, and I, know, I know you can do this. This is nothing for you. I understand authority. I, I understand the power of the word of authority from a king that can change things. And I just need you to... And Jesus is like, wow, this is awesome. And then the next verse says, and that, that very hour, that very moment that Jesus spoke, the servant was healed. You see, this is the centurion. He, he, had, he had too much faith. <laughs> he had more than he needed. He spent it on another. Now, uh, I'm going to just segue for a moment and put on my theologian's hat for a moment, not just my preacher's hat, because some people get confused. They're like, well, I read the story in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's like says that the Roman centurion came to Jesus and asked him. But, but when I read in the Gospel of Luke, I, I find that it actually says that the Roman centurion sent his servants to, to, to ask on behalf. Well, two things. Because the reason I'm saying this is because sometimes people use that as a contradiction or an accusation of contradiction in God's word. Even, even atheists will like, ah, oh, yeah, but hang on, what about the centurion one? One, one gospel says that, that, the, that the centurion came and spoke to Jesus. Another said it sent his, sent his servants to ask Jesus to come and, and heal. The answer is actually really simple when you read it in its language, the original language. It's just a matter of timing. The reality is actually the Roman centurion did send his servants to wherever Jesus was. But then the Bible says when Jesus reached Capernaum, which is the city where the centurion was, he went out to meet him. And the reason it's powerful not just to understand that theologically, it's also powerful to understand that that's also an illustration of the Roman centurion's faith. Because by his faith, the centurion released his servants. The word there is like messenger. Courier. And I want you to take the spiritual application of that to realize that sometimes your prayers for someone who has a need where they personally don't have faith or are not, are not in a position to, to, to activate faith, sometimes your prayers is literally sending God's messengers, God's angels. That word angel in the Bible is the word messenger. Sometimes your faith literally in its first stage is mobilizing 
people say, well, why didn't they both write it that way? Look, if, if you really want to look at it this way, whenever you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's like watching four different camera angles at a rugby league game. That's why they look at the different angles. One goes, no, they didn't get the ball across the line. Then they turn the camera from this angle, and it's like, oh, yeah, just got there. Matthew, in his Gospels, is a person of brevity. He likes to say things really brief. Luke is a, is a physician. He's a details person. You read every parallel passage in Luke, and you'll find he goes into great detail. So he's like, hang on, no, no, it wasn't just the centurion going. And preceding that, he did, it's, I, I don't know, maybe some of you guys can relate to this. You're married to a spouse who's really into details. So I'll ask my wife, wow, honey, where did you get that dress? She's like, oh, I went, to the, I went to the shopping mall the other day and I went up to Albany and Westfield and I got there. Oh man, it was crazy. It was raining and I had to try and drive around the car park three times and then I parked and I finally got a park and then I was walking in and did you know those tiles, they're so slippery when it's wet, those glossy tiles and I'm walking in and I walk past that sushi place that you love and did you know it's now a cafe? They've changed into a cafe and, and then eventually she gets to where she's in the store and it's like, and then I had this dress and I tried on this one and, she's, and I bought it and I'm like, now, come on, I'm not the only one. Is there anyone else married to someone like that? Yeah, the rest of you guys are chicken. You're just, just sitting next to her. You're not going to lift your hand, right? Some of you are like, you know, the other thing. My wife asked me, hey, Martin, where, where did you buy that shirt? And I'm like, oh, it's such and such a place. It was on 50% off. That's Matthew versus Luke. But I want you to get the lesson. The lesson is that there was faith for another. And so what happens, you see, is that God gives you too much faith. Because right now there are people that you know who are not present here and they're suffering. There are people you know who are your loved ones, they're your family members, they're your friends, they're at university, they're your, your colleagues at work. There are people perhaps even on the other side of the world in a country where your extended family still live and there are, there are needs and you're like, but they don't have faith. And it's like what, what the Roman centurion teaches us is, no, Jesus, you don't even have to come and be present. Faith can even transcend geography. Faith can transcend. So right now, this is why I'm asking our band to stay here. If you would like to do this, I'm going to invite you to all stand for a moment. And for 60 seconds, 60 seconds, I'm going to get you to exercise faith. See, faith is, is, a, is a language, not just a belief, a thought. And I want you, and the reason I'm going to get the band is for 60 seconds, they're just going to play and play a song, play a chorus, play some chords, play some drums, thump something on a bass, because we're Australian, therefore we're very introverted. Because if I just sit you in some countries, if I was in South America or somewhere like that, I wouldn't need the band. I would just say, hey, so for the next 60 seconds, I want you to start to speak out people's names and needs and situations that need a change. My friend, my colleague at work, is, he, he's got cancer. Uh, God, I want you to heal that person. My, my loved one, that other person's going through terrible pain. And what I want you to do for 60 seconds is pray for someone. Exercise faith. Come on. Five, four, three, two. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for my friends. God, that you would release faith. God, that you would heal faith. That God, by the miracles of power, you would make that change in our relationships. Health and healing. I'm praying, God, that you would work miracles, transforming, bringing the situation. What is impossible with man? It's possible with you, God. You can do it. You can come on 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds.
seconds, nine, eight. Come on, let's give God a great praise offering. You may be seated. I'm going to let you guys go. Are you cool to stay on the keys for a few more minutes? Because we're not going to go long tonight. That is awesome. Thank you. It's a tangible thing. And I can't overstress what I just said. The servant was paralyzed. And there are people in life that have got no faith. People in life that are suffering relationship breakdown, sickness, disease, Anxiety, worry, um, been made redundant, businesses have collapsed, dreams unfulfilled, hopelessness like a cloud over a person's life. And, and sometimes, you know, their prayer is, I wish I had faith, but I don't. And you should be like the centurion and go, it's okay, I got this. I got enough for both of us. I want to show you it's not just an isolated account in Scripture. I want to, I want to talk to you about someone else. <coughs> I want to talk to you about a person called Jonathan, a person who had faith for a a brother called David, who was, as we know, a person who had the most intimate, powerful relationship with God, a a person, David, who was called and, and regarded in Scripture in the book of Acts as one who fulfilled God's purposes in his generation, who had a heart after God. But what I love about the Bible is it doesn't sanitize things. It doesn't tell you that this person was a, you know, a, a person who slam dunked every area of life. Actually, there was some dysfunctions. There was some brokenness. There were some challenges and victories. The guy could take out a, a Goliath and set a nation free, but he, he would be overcome by, by, a, by other weaknesses. This person who would be so full of joy and write the songs that people still today sing and worship wrote also some of the most pathos and, and almost uh, deep um, uh, emotionally depressed psalms that cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? And when you read the experience of his life, you start to understand why, because this person with so much potential also suffered rejection and, and the promises that were his by right were taken from him and there were things that caused him at times. And one time in 1 Samuel 23, to be in a place of such depression and brokenness, despairing of life. I would say from the Scripture, one of the most depressed episodes of anyone recorded in the whole of Scripture. And in 1 Samuel 23, it says these words, and then Jonathan, the one who is son of the king, the one who in essence should probably have found reasons not to have a friendship with David because he realized that even his own kingship that was his by birth would not go to him but would be to the one he made a covenant with five years earlier and the bible says in 1 samuel chapter 23 that he comes to david at david's lowest point in the desert where he was hiding from from saul in the desert of depression and it says these simple words and jonathan helped david find his strength in god doesn't say he helped him find his strength in their relationship. It doesn't say that he helped him find his strength from within. It just says he helped him find his strength in God. Because did you know there's times in people's lives where they actually run out of faith? No, no, the faithful can become faith empty. Because life can sometimes do that. Oh, no, Martin, it's always, no, no, it's not. 
It's not. There's times when a king can be singing songs of praise and taking out a Goliath and standing looking at this this seven foot tall warrior and saying, who the heck are you? And and then change the conversation uh, from from a a put down to a a victory of my God can take you. I'll feed you to the birds of the air. I'll take your sword and cut your head off. This is the victorious David who's now in a desert and depression going, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left. And sometimes people that we know actually need to borrow a bit of our faith. I don't know if you've ever had to use a set of jumper leads when you've got a dead battery and then someone else rocks up in a four-wheel drive and your name's Craig and you've been out surfing and you left your lights on and it's now two in the afternoon, you come back and you turn the key and there's nothing happening and there's no one around in this isolated beach and then an hour later this four-wheel drive comes down the road, pulls over and says... The longing of the heart. Man, have you got any jumper leads? And it's like, sure. You see, that person could be all protective. Like, no, I need my power. I need, I need my battery for my car. But no, no, the, the truth any mechanic here will tell you is that no, that, that car's got more power than it needs. Like, like when you hook up a battery or you hook up jumper leads to another, you're not, you're not giving away the power that vehicle needs. The, the, the vehicle produces more power than it requires. And if you understand anything about creation, everything God, everything God created has more than what's required. Everything. I mean, do you know how many seeds are in a single tomato? Like, if every one of those seeds germinate and grows into a plant, do you know how many tomatoes it produces? Like, do we really need that many? One can produce a thousand, ten. God just can't help himself. He just puts in everything more than they need. And that's what Jonathan did to David. He's like, hey man, let me hook you up. I know you need this right now. And he helped him find a strength in God. I, I don't know, did he, what did he do? Did he say to him, hey, come on, man, let's worship together. We're both musos, let's worship. Did he, did he speak and prophesy promises over his life? I, I think he did because of that conversation, he actually says, hey, come on. You know, even I know, my father knows that God's given the house of the king to you and that you will reign. And when you do, just show loving kindness to my descendants. It's, it's like he was prophesying to David. Maybe what David thought was never going to happen, someone came and restored. So again, are you using your faith the same way? Are you willing to jumpstart a few people and not have this attitude of, oh, yeah, I don't know what happened to them? Or, you know, what they used to... Do you realize sometimes we all need... I don't know, did he, did he have a beer and a burger with him? Did he, did he go and sit and just be a friend? I, I don't know, what did he do? But somehow the end result is that when he left, David was up and running again. So you've got faith more than that you need. And finally, I want to tell you one last one. This one really gets me. You've got more faith than you need to be saved. No, no, you do. You've got more faith for salvation than you need. And this is where I think I'm going to prove my argument. The Bible says that we we can only be saved by faith. It's true. We're not saved by works, it says, lest we boast. We're saved by faith. Have you ever realized the paradox that when you go to give your life to God, it's because you didn't have faith? You found faith, that's why you're saved, but you needed faith to be saved. No, no, think about it. I can tell you about a time in my life where I had no faith. And then I got saved, but I needed faith to get saved. I want to suggest to you, did you realize in most cases, the 
faith you need for salvation is often gifted to you by someone else. You often get saved on another person's faith. Now, that doesn't mean they save you. That's what I tell people. I, I hear people sometimes say, oh, I was, I was in your church and you preached the gospel and, and, and you saved me. I'm like, mate, if I saved you, I've got to keep you, right? I'm, I'm not God. So don't misunderstand my theology, but I can prove again to you scripturally that, that sometimes people who don't have faith but need faith for salvation actually get there on someone else's faith initially. The story is when, Dave, uh, when, when Jesus was walking on the beach and he was just choosing his disciples, it says he came to one by the name of Philip. It's his first encounter with Philip. <coughs> there was nothing that had proven that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, you've got to remember Peter, the great apostle, hung out with Jesus for nearly six months before he finally had the revelation, oh my goodness, you're the Messiah. But this is what the Bible says. It says Jesus is walking along, sees these fishermen, and he sees a guy called Philip and says, hey, Philip, come and follow me. That's all he says. But somehow in that moment, God gave Philip a thing called the gift of revelation. We know that because it says immediately, immediately, Philip went and found Nathaniel and said this to him, Nathaniel, come, come and see the one who the prophets prophesied about. Come and see the one who the scriptures have declared. Hang on. No, no. Six months later, Peter gets a bit of a revelation. But somehow this guy, Philip, right from day one, had a revelation of who Jesus was. A revelation that this is the Messiah, the Christ, the one the prophets have prophesied. And he goes to Nathaniel, his friend. He says, Nathaniel, come and see him. Come and see this Jesus, this, this, this one, the prophet. And, and <laughs> I love what the Bible says. Nathaniel goes... He says, he's Jesus, he's come from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, nothing can come out of Nazareth. In other words, he's a cynic, absolute cynic, no faith. And so here's Philip who's just encountered Jesus, just literally encountered Jesus, but somehow in that encounter supernaturally gets a gift of faith, a gift of revelation, but more than he needed, more than he personally needed to follow Jesus. He had faith for another. So what he does is he goes and he finds this guy, Nathaniel, who's got no faith. And what's worse, this guy hasn't just not got no faith. He's got doubt. He's got cynicism. He's got negativity. Come on, we've all got that friend. Oh, yeah, God did, God did that. Yeah, that's just that psychosystematic stuff. It's, no, 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 what I had is, we've all got that friend. But this is what I love. <laughs> this is so cool because it's all about Revelation. Philip has a revelation. He goes and shares the revelation with Nathaniel. No, no, no. This is the, this is the one the prophets have spoken. This is the miracle. This is the... He goes, ah. he said, well, come and see. And then the Bible says that Nathaniel starts to walk with Philip and they come to near where Jesus is. And then Jesus just cuts loose. And he looks at Nathaniel and goes, ah, Nathaniel, a young man who lacks no integrity, a man who lacks no guile, a man who in him is is integrity and and, he, and, and and Jesus starts giving a character reading of this guy Nathaniel who's never even met him and Nathaniel's like why do you say that and then Jesus said because I saw you under the fig tree and Nathaniel's like whoa, whoa no 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 that's freaky man there was no one around when I was under the fig tree there was no one there what do you mean you saw? And Jesus is like, no, no, I, I saw. 
and you did the right thing. You acted with integrity. And Nathaniel's like, I'll follow you. Isn't it interesting that he had no revelation, but Philip had revelation, but more than he needed. So he says, come and see. And then the first thing is that God, through Christ, releases a revelation. I don't know what was happening under the fig tree, but it would be like someone coming into church today and coming forward to, to, for prayer and one of the prayer team just saying, oh, and by the way, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to really say that He's so proud of you that last week when that contract was put across your table and there was actually corruption in it that you could have easily benefited by and you you would have got away with it, but you actually chose to reject it. God's really proud of you. And you were like, freak, man, how do you? No one knows. That's what it would have been like for Nathaniel. (laughs) But it's it's like Philip. It's like Philip's always had too much faith. He always had faith for another's salvation. The Bible tells us that, that, that after Christ died, was raised from the dead, Philip's conducting a revival in Asia. And then the Holy Spirit literally transports him to a road where there's no one apart from an Ethiopian official, a, a, a eunuch, they say, in, in the courts of the queen, on a chariot, reading the Old Testament, reading the book of Isaiah, and suddenly, and I love the King James, it says, and Philip joined himself to the chariot. It sounds like an accident, right? But no, it just means he went up and and, and sat with him. And it says, he says, the the Ethiopian official, the royal official, what are you you reading? He goes, I'm I'm reading about a person in this book of Isaiah. I don't know who it is. And Philip says, let me tell you. And it says, the next verse says, from that point, he began to explain Jesus. And the end result is the, the, the eunuch gives his life to Christ and says, well, can I get baptized? And You see, the Ethiopian had no revelation. He had no revelation. He's reading, I'm like, who is this person? I got, and God's like, oh, I know someone who's got more than he needs. So let me just cut in this last part to tell you my story. Because I want to tell you right now, you have faith for people's salvation where they have none. And this is why it makes sense. You see, if I'm going to get saved, I need to have faith for salvation. But pretty much everyone who's not saved, it's because you don't have faith. (laughs) It's like this paradox. But the example of Nathaniel just says it's okay. Philip had enough to at least introduce him to Jesus, to receive his own faith, to one word of knowledge. I was raised in a home that had no faith, no religion, no belief in God. I can honestly tell you, in the first 17 years of my life, I had never heard the gospel of Christ. I'd heard his name. I'd heard about God. I'd never visited a church. I'd never attended. I'd never heard someone say, this is sin, and this is salvation, and this is God's answer, and this is how you get to hell. I'd never in 17 years heard the gospel. I had no faith. The problem is, you see, a year earlier, at the age of 16, I was expelled from one of Auckland's best high schools for drug dealing. I wasn't pushing drugs, but I was providing drugs. My brother has done three Class A drug jail sentences over his life. His first one when he was 18 years of age. I was following his footsteps. My mother was dying of cancer. My father had had a nervous breakdown. My family was a screwed up dysfunctional mess. And I was a 16-year-old punk who didn't know any better. And all I did in the end, even though I had great grades and I had the intelligence and the smarts to be a lawyer or a journalist, and I was pushing towards that, my problem is I got expelled from school for dealing drugs. Kicked out of Westlake Boys High School, one of the best schools in, in New Zealand. 
And in those days when you got kicked out for drug dealing, you couldn't get back into another school or do university. So the school I was kicked out of, I ended up a year later still having never met Christ. One day I was with a friend called Greg who said, hey, my cousin Chris, man, he, I know about a month ago he got a, a big shipment of, of hashish. And, oh, it was awesome, Martin. Well, let's go and see if he's got some left. I'm just telling you how it was. It was the 70s, okay? 1970s. Well, actually, it was 1980, March 1980. We walked down this driveway in Mount Eden, Auckland, and to Greg's cousin's house, Chris, and in the driveway is a big Ford Falcon 500 with Christian bumper stickers all over it and a big red cross painted on the roof, not like MASH, but like a proper Jesus cross. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. We knock on the door and... Chris is like, oh, come in, Greg, who's this? Oh, Martin, oh, hey, Martin. And, you know, Chris had had a lot harder drugs than I did, and he literally spoke that way. Like, the lift didn't go to the top floor. Seriously, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs, okay? We sit down, and, uh, and he looks at his cousin, Greg, and he says, hey, Greg, do you like my car? And uh, I remember I actually spoke, and I went, yeah, mate, when you get all the crap off it. And he goes, oh, no, 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 that, that stuff wasn't on it when I bought it. I put it on. And then in that moment, this guy, Chris, who'd been saved for three weeks, started to preach the gospel to me and Greg for 30 minutes. This is God's plan. We're sinners. We've all done wrong stuff. And Jesus came and paid the price by dying on the cross. And he's got a little gospel track by the cartoon chick track back then, literally reading it and telling and I'm sitting there and something's getting in even though I don't want nothing to do with this. Martin, you've got to get rid of the sin in your life and you can't. You're in a prison of sin but Jesus can come and pay the price. He's just quoting these little gospel tracks and I'm not kidding. After 30 minutes, my heart's like boom, boom and faith started to come. Did I believe in God? I, I don't know that I did. I did not believe. I didn't believe. I, didn't, I certainly didn't have any belief for salvation or faith in Jesus. Somehow he did. And after 30 minutes, he looks at me and goes, So Martin, Greg, do you want to give your life to Jesus? Do you want to be born again? Greg's like, he looks at me and I'm like, uh, no. He says, why not? And I'm honestly telling him what I said. Because inside, my heart's wanting to. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want to be a Christian. They're boring. They're dull. Those are the kids we hang out of the windows at school in the Christian group. I'm, I don't want to be a nerd. I don't want to lose my girlfriend. I don't want to stop doing it. I don't want to. And in my mind, I'm just going through all this. But all that came out of my mouth was, um, no, I don't believe in God. That's what I said. I don't think God's real. And this stoner, Chris, literally just looks at me and goes, oh, that's okay, man. Let me pray that God will prove He's real. And I'm like, okay. And I, I picture from those sort of TV programs that seen that he'd be by his bed that night going. But he just goes slap and puts his hand on my shoulder. God, prove to Martin you're real. Thank you, God. And whatever else he said, I can't remember. So we leave. Saturday afternoon, four o'clock. 17 years. 17 years I'd never heard the gospel. First time I heard it was from a stoner called Chris. And I didn't accept Jesus. 
because I didn't have faith. I actually didn't. I didn't have enough faith to. I told him that. I don't know that God's real. I, I don't believe in God. Oh, no worries, man. I'll pray. God will prove he's real. 17 years. Now, put, put this into context. This is March 1980. We didn't have Find My Phone then. We didn't have GPS trackers. But the next night, Sunday night, it's nearly midnight, 11.30 at night, and I'm hitchhiking home from Devonport where I'd been hanging out at my girlfriend's place, Sally Ann's house. And I'm hitchhiking up the road because I didn't have a car. By the way, don't do drugs. You won't ever have money. I didn't have a car. I'm hitchhiking up the road. And by the way, I had long, curly hair and slashed jeans before slashed jeans were in. The, the funny thing is my daughter, a few months ago, went down to visit her 92-year-old grandmother in an old folks' home in Nelson. And Amy told me afterwards, she laughed. She said just before she left, the grandmother opened out this purse and gave her a $10 bill and looked at my daughter's jeans and said, here, honey, buy yourself some new jeans. My daughter posted on Facebook the $10 note with her standing there saying, the moment your grandmother gives you $10 for jeans, which you paid $154 just last week. <laughs> I had slashed jeans before they were cool, basically because they're just ripped. I was just originals. I'm, I'm, I've got long hair and I'm hitchhiking. You would not have picked me up. But a car pulls over. And in that car is a bearded, cool, hippie-looking dude and a nerd. And I get in the car. They say, oh, where are you going? I'm like, oh, just up to Belmont. It was probably like 20, 30 minutes walk and about three minutes in the car. And I'm not kidding. The hippie-looking dude, as he starts to pull away and drive away from the, foot, the, the curb, just looks back over and says, can I ask you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'm like, yes, I do. Because I'd heard about him, right? And this is what he said. He said, well, can I suggest maybe you know about him, but do you know him personally yet? And my answer was, stop the car. Seriously. Stop the car, please. I want to get out. Please just stop the car. And they stopped the car. And before I got out, he hands me a little invitation to a church. And I stuck it in my pocket and I walk up the road and I'm like, what the heck is going on? 17 years I'd never heard of Christ. I had no faith. But a guy had been saved three weeks, an ex-drug dealer who literally had his mind messed with, had prayed the day before, oh, that's okay, man. I'll just pray that God will prove he's real. So I get a hold of Greg, and the next day I, I find out Chris's phone number, and I give him a call on Monday, and I say, Chris, um, remember I talked to you on Saturday? He goes, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm hitchhiking. There's this freaky dude asked me if I know Jesus. Oh, man, that's God. That's God proving he's real. This is literally saying, Martin, you want to come to church with me? Do you want to come to church with me? And I'm thinking, this, and, and Greg had told me what his cousin used to be like, so I'd seen a transformed person. And now this has happened. I'm like, sure. Now, remember I told you that Chris was a new Christian, three weeks old, and the, the lift didn't go to the top floor because of the damage from drugs, literally. You see, what Chris didn't realize is that he thought that church was just whatever church was on. And this is Monday. And he says, yeah, we have church on Wednesday night. Do you want to come? I'm like, sure. He says, I'll pick you up. So he picks me up in the Falcon 500 with the Red Cross on the roof and the bumper stickers. And we to a little tiny little hall in Takapuna opposite Smales Farm and about 60 people, Chris took me to a Pentecostal prayer meeting for Christians only. Because he didn't realize. 
It's the church he'd got saved in three weeks earlier. He, he didn't know it's just not Sunday. He knew they did church on Wednesday. What, what he forgot to figure out is it was a Pentecostal prayer meeting for Christians only in 1980, March. I'm sitting in this pew. I'm sitting in this wooden pew and all the people around me like, and I'm like, what that? But of course, I, I'd been stoned before, so I was okay with the trip, right? I'll finish about two minutes, okay? I'm just noticing the countdown clock. Can you give me, I'm okay for two? Two, two, four, six, eight, ten. No, I'm not kidding. No, you're good. I'm sitting in that prayer meeting and people are praying around me. And all I can tell you this is that everything in me said, I, I want a different life. I'm over this life. I'm over this life. My mother dying of cancer. My father a nervous breakdown. My brother in jail. My door of my house being kicked out at five in the morning by police and police dogs coming into my bedroom and ripping through my house to find drugs, dragging my father out, thinking he's part of the drug deal when he's not. He's a dignified business guy. And I don't want this life. And then, But I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be boring. I don't want to... And then suddenly I start looking around in this Pentecostal prayer meeting. And I see this young person, this one, this one, that one, this older person, this young. And I'm like, they don't look boring. They don't look upset. They don't. I remember just bowing my head after about an hour of sitting in a prayer meeting for Christians only. And I said, God, take my sin away. I want to be a Christian. And then the freakiest thing happened. At the end of the prayer meeting, 10 minutes later, this little old lady who looked like Yoda <laughs> came up to me. She goes, young man, what happened to you about 10 minutes ago? I'm like, why? She says, what happened? I said, I became a Christian. She said, yes. I saw this light come from heaven and shine all over you about 10 minutes ago. Turns around and walks away. A bit like the Nathaniel experience. Ah, a person without, that lacks no integrity. You see, I had no faith to get saved. But you know, within minutes of giving my life to Christ, I had faith. I had faith. I experienced Jesus. I, I'd been born again. You see, <laughs> here's my point. And I want to finish with this. And I want us to spend just a minute in prayer. If you can just quickly throw up that screenshot of the laser designator. In the Marines, in the Navy SEALs, and the SAS Special Forces, the thing on the right-hand side is not a weapon. It's called a laser designator. It's, you see, laser-guided missiles that, that hit and destroy, say, ammunition dumps or, or, or enemy territory or buildings or whatever, are fired by a jet that carries an ordnance, a weapon. It's a laser-guided missile. The laser's not in the missile. For it to hit the target, it needs another person. And the dude here on the right is the guy who's carrying this lady. What they do is they sneak into enemy territory. The, the person there is protecting his back. Because this guy's not armed with anything that can shoot. And his role is to find, his or her role is to find the, the target. And then what he does is they, he shines the light on that target. It might be an ammunition dump or the enemy or a chemical weapons compound or whatever it is. And, and it's called lighting it up. And what happens is that he fires that that fine little laser dot onto the building. And then the weapon, way off in the distance, 12, 10, 8 kilometers away, locks on to what he's lit up. It's called lighting up the target. And they release it. And as long as this person's lighting up the target, it'll hit it every time. Did you know Chris lit me up? Stoner Chris lit me up. 
Oh, you don't believe in God? Oh, that's no worries, man. I can sort this. I'll just pray that God will prove He's real. God, prove to Martin He's real. Now, remember, I hadn't heard the gospel in 17 years. And in 24 hours after hearing it for the first time, I'm lit up. To be honest, it was so drastic that if it was today, I'd have wondered if he simply had got my find my phone GPS coordinates. But this was 1980. Because how the heck does 24 hours later, a couple of dudes driving through the back streets of Devonport, who I found out afterwards, had been attending a worship supper after church, got held up late and then thought, whoa, look at the time. And that the brother Ian is talking to the nerd who's his brother Kevin and talking about, do you ever pick up hitchhikers? And Kevin's like, no, it's too dangerous. He's like, oh, no, you should. It's a captive audience. And a minute later, they come out of a suburban street, turn onto the main road, (laughs) turn onto the main road and see me. And the older brother Ian goes, oh, there's one. Watch this. And after I ask them to stop the car and they drive off, Kevin says, well, that didn't work. By the way, Kevin Crow is one of my board members today. And the little church where I got saved in that little prayer meeting is the church I now lead. Chris lit me up. Do you realize the ex-stoner Chris had more faith than he needed? He actually had so much faith, he's like, I got this. Oh, you don't believe in God? God, prove you're real. And I can just imagine heaven's like, we've got to sort something. We've got to do this. Uh, let's get these guys in the car. Let's get them to a music practice. Get late. Let's get Martin to hitchhike. Let's do this. Let's get ah oh, prayer meeting. Look, I don't know the backstory, but this is what I want to leave and, and conclude with. I want you to light people up because you, you don't want to die with too much faith and say, "Hey God, I have my faith for salvation. I have my faith for healing. I have my faith for provision. I have my faith." And He goes, yeah, "What about the other faith I gave you? What faith?" faith for your friend, the faith for your colleague. Oh yeah, but they, but they, they don't believe in you. Well, obviously, because they don't have faith. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that this message of faith for another wouldn't simply be words, it would be currency, conduit, language, power released. Help us to light people up. Help us to ask the question continually. God, who, who, who can my faith, whether it's a, a Jonathan and a, and a David where I'm, I'm helping a believer already to get uh, more strength, whether it's a, a person who needs healing like the centurion's servant, whether it's a, a lost person like a Nathaniel or a Martin who is walking down a street, God, help me to know who to light up. God, I'm praying, drop names, drop names, drop thoughts, faces even now. Right now, people, people that... At first, we'll dismiss and go, oh, no, God, they're not interested in you. Oh, okay, maybe they are. You know the irony of all this church? That the school I get kicked out of is a school where I eventually end up mentoring the leader because God is a redemptive God. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have any questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifeau.org.